Hello, I'm Frank Spring. Did you know that every 10 minutes, an American succumbs to the symptoms of alt-centrism? This tragic condition leaves its victims confused, disoriented, and not just unable, but unwilling to tell right from wrong. But with your help, we can reclaim these poor souls whose suffering renders them neither here nor there. They can be somewhere. Please join us here at Taking Ship. Together we can beat alt-centrism for good. Well, maybe not beat it, but if it's anything like scurvy, some oranges should help. I think you mean limes. I think it's anything citrusy, basically anything they didn't have on a boat. Yeah, greens, fresh meat, a working toilet. Women? Absolutely. Have you ever known a woman to get scurvy? It's just science. Well, that's our podcast. Join us again next week when we'll report back on our court-ordered sensitivity training. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whichever non-Apple service you use. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in plunder. Hello, and welcome back to Taking Ship for a very special episode in which we're going to talk about a very special subject. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about alt-centrism. We're dedicating this episode. We're dedicating this episode to alt-centrism. We've referred to it a couple of times. I've seen it pop up as a term over Twitter the last few weeks. Uh, and when something that we general that we have been raving about actually pops up in the real world, uh, it's important that we that we say something about it and offer some clarification for what we mean about alt-centrism, what it is, uh, how you might how people uh, succumb to it, and so forth. Uh, we're obviously in the midst of a political realignment. And you can see this all over the world. It's not just an American phenomenon. And part of that, a big factor in that has been the alt-right. And the alt-right has been explored. It's been cataloged. Uh, we're beginning to get a better sense of, of what that particular howling snake pit is. Uh, the alt-left as well, to the extent that there is one, has been talked about a little bit. It's a concept that's been bandied around a little bit. Uh, discussed, cataloged, maybe less usefully so than, than the look that we've taken at the, heart, at the alt-right. Uh, and as you would expect, there is a center, there's a left, there's a right, so there is a center, and thus there is an alt-center. And I want to emphasize here that alt is a pejorative. This is going to be pretty conceptual, so uh, bear with us. And if you don't want to listen to this podcast, you can skip this one. We'll have another one uh, at the end of this week with uh, Bishop Garrison, which should be a, a lot of fun and really informative. Um, but the important point to keep in mind here is think of this all as circular, not a continuum. Uh, meaning that rather than plotting this out on a straight line from 0 to 100, it actually looks a lot more like a fa the face of a clock, with the alt-right filling in the 5 to 6 section, the alt-left filling in the 6 to 7 section, and the alt-center being at 12 noon. Um, in a functioning government, you kind of want everybody operating somewhere between, let's say, 9.30 and 2.30. Uh, what we have now is a government operating at basically 11 to 4 or even 4.30. Um, so we'll, we'll explain a lot of this as we go in through this conversation, but another point that's really important to mention about alt-centrism, um, and it's something that um, some po another podcast that a lot of you may listen to, um, there's a lot of hero worship in, uh, in alt-centrism. Um, it's a lot of putting politicians up on pedestals, um, which is something that we try not to do here, um, but we'll explain this all as we kind of go through this conversation. So uh, stick with us. So let's talk about the alts. The alt-right is a term that the alt-right actually took for itself as a point of pride. 
Uh, and that's been largely repurposed by everyone except them as a term of derision. So we sort of know what we're talking about when we talk about the alt-right. Uh, the Richard Spencers, the Milo Yiannopoulos of the world, those all belong to the alt-right. The Steve and Bannons. Steve Bannons, exactly. Breitbart, like this is this is that's precisely it. Um, you know, most most of the sort of founding minds behind the present presidential administration are all these sort of alt-right figures. Um, so the you know alt again we're using this it's been with respect to the alt right it's used as a term of derision to understand the alts the alt right the alt center to the degree that it exists the alt left it's important to understand that grievance is central to an understanding of what the alts are right and the alt right's grievance is that they can't get laid yeah that's and that's that's really true i mean the alt right's problem there's Although the alt-right is – we think of it as a, as a white supremacist phenomenon, as anti-Semitic, and it certainly is that. Oh, boy, isn't it just. But as, uh, as the writer Angela Nagel has found in her own work uh, – she's written a couple of good articles about this leading up to uh, her forthcoming book, Kill All Normies. The biggest piece of common ground on, on the alt-right is actually misogyny. Uh, that is the, the you know they can they might disagree on the superiority of white people, they might disagree on uh, you know whether the problem is the Jews, uh, but they are all of a piece on uh, on how they feel about women and how they feel about women is problematic. Uh, it's not great. So they have some critical components to being an alt. They have a diagnosis of what has gone wrong in the world and what has gone wrong is feminism and also immigration. They have a prescription, which is uh, patriarchal and for the most part, um, basically Nazi authoritarianism. Right. So um, kind of to sum it up, what's, what's the template? Like what, what can we diagnose this as? So if you're looking to understand what an alt is, you're look, what, you know, again, an alt in the political context, you're looking for a grievance, a diagnosis, and a radical prescription. And all of this should be paired with a contempt for their own political party. So this is the reason they're the alternative. They have, they're angry about something. They have a theory of the case, which, again, is often morally bankrupt or dangerously ludicrous. And they have a radical prescription that is even worse. And their own party isn't the vehicle for them to air their grievances, diagnose the problems, and pursue uh, you know, whatever reprehensible dumbass idea they've come up with as a solution to it. Right. I think what's uh, interesting, um, and we talked a little bit about this, uh, well, not with uh, our guests last week, but the idea that in the American political context, because there's only two parties, this all kind of gets shoved under two big umbrellas. Whereas in Europe, we're seeing a lot of these, you know, radical alt-right parties essentially existing because there's multiple parties in, in Europe. That's exactly right. And one of the things that we've, that's sort of an oddity is countries in Euro Western European countries that have a more stronger kind of left of center socialist tradition in government tend to have really well defined, really robust, and dedica dedicated far right parties that in this country would belong to would be considered part of the alt right. Right, uh, and it's it's just a it's and I think it is in in some respects because it is. It, you know, there is sort of an understanding that this is probably not a pathway to power necessarily, although given the trajectory of Western politics, uh, it is now more conceivable than ever that these, you know, far right, these kind of alt-right parties could, could actually get into government. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, you know, an expression, a means of expressing, again, a grievance, a diagnosis and a radical prescription and, and you know, and expressing it, you know, good and hard in the worst possible ways. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to uh, the, the alt-left. 
Sure. So James Wolcott wrote a piece in Vanity Fair a couple of weeks ago uh, about the alt-left or, or his theory of the case on the alt-left. And, you know, to be honest with you, this is – I'm not entirely sure that the alt-left exists to the extent that his piece would suggest that it does. There are certainly parts of the left – there's always been a kind of fringe left. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, there are parts of the left that, that have a grievance and they have a kind of diagnosis. But but a lot of the prescriptions that come, even from the hard left in America at least, uh, they may be a bit radical for American politics, but they're not far removed from the broader progressive mainstream. So, you know, whereas the solution for the alt-right is, you know, you find these alt-right people that are, you know, proposing these kind of, uh, you know, white supremacist neo-monarchies. And, you know, on the far left, it's just, you know, the, you know, what would be the far left is a much more kind of would be broadly would be broadly mainstream in the kind of broader context of Western liberalism. Yeah, I, I think we're going to continually disagree on this point. I do genuinely think that there are radicals on the on the alt left. Um, and it's not just because, you know, Bernie doesn't count as the radical. I think it's the people that are that thought Bernie didn't go far enough in some in some of his ideas. Um it's a similar template to what we said before. You know, there's a grievance, and it's corporate America and the government, but in a different way than the alt right looks at the government. And um, you know, military excursions, which some parts of the alt right don't particularly like either. Um, the idea of a society not being fully inclusive, um, which obviously is a goal that we all want, but when you're militant about it, it's not particularly helpful to get to that end goal. Um, so again, I think that the, the radical element of the of the alt left exists. I think that it's sort of it's not necessarily covered or exposed in the same way as the alt right, and that partially is because yes, the media does tilt left itself, so it kind of resets it all at a little bit of a different medium. Um, but more than that, I think that as you said, most of their ideas fit more into the broader traditions of American politics than the, some of the ideas of the alt right, or at least. The direction that politics has been going. The alt-right is clearly a very significant swing backwards, where the alt-left, it might just be that they're trying to swing too forward too fast. Sure. And and the revisiting ideas that have come up occasionally, and it's they, they belong to a tradition of progressivism in the Western world that is pretty well established. So, you know, I mean, yeah, there's a fringe left. There are certainly people who can, you know, use the language of inclusivity to actually exclude people that they don't consider sufficiently pure that that is a limited phenomenon that that does happen but uh but for the most part uh if you're sort of looking at the kind of the if you're looking at at the uh at, at the far you know at the far left there is as you say a suspicion of military excursions a kind of general view that america doesn't do the world well which is a, a, a view that with which i don't think either of us would agree uh where sort of our view is the world is is better when america plays a, a leadership role what that looks like is a subject for a very great debate uh, but that's part of a of a tradition in America as well. That's not a new phenomenon. That idea has been around a long time. So you know there is a kind of a fringe left. Some of it might be considered alt right. They have a grievance. They have a diagnosis. But their radical prescription is often like even the sort of the most dedicated socialists primarily want things like socialized medicine, uh, not yeah. to replace economic determinism as America. You know we you know replace baseball with American with economic determinism as our new pastime. Right? Like you know we're gonna we're gonna do away with. You know, going to the movies and football, and we're going to instead have these kind of you know publicized you know you know Hegelian arguments along these you know sort of Marxists and neo-Marxists. Yeah, and I think that's that's the, really the important part, right? Like, um, at some level on the alt right, violence is a prescription. Like, it has to factor into it somehow. If you want to blow everything up on the left, there the violence isn't there. Um, you know, there are protests and there are people getting tear gas at you know World Economic Forum protests and and rallies and that sort of thing. 
but they're not burning down churches and they're not burning down libraries and they're not spray painting things or breaking um, cemeteries or, you know, bringing back the Nazi salute in downtown D.C. Um, Absolutely. The, the defiance of the alt-left is much more the defiance, to the extent that there is one, is much more about a defiance of opting out. Yeah. They just leave the system rather than energy rather than sort of re-enter it with a real violent energy which is something you know th- this is something that that bringing that up is sort of an interesting point because one of the part of the uh, template that i left out earlier is that the alt-left also has contempt for its own for the its own political party that it uh, identifies with it there is a great deal of contempt for the democratic party at least this last election showed us that to a great de- great degree but the point that you're making is that they just sort of opt out of it completely and decide to go vote for gary johnson or uh, what's her face stein um, was a different option than people on the alt-right had unless they lived in Louisiana and can vote for David Duke. Sure. And some, that's, that, you know, that's right. And some of them, and it is sort of one of my favorite phenomena was the movement of some of the kind of fringe left toward Gary Johnson, who, as we have discussed before, is a, is a bunch of ferrets in a trench coat, <laughs> you know, that's, which is basically a kind of like, I mean, and it shows like this, that is, that, that is again, part of that wing of American politics. You get them in, in political, in every political system in every country, people that are there primarily to demonstrate their contempt for the system merely by their presence, right? Mm-hmm. There is, there is no law, there's no coherent set of principles or beliefs that would leave you, lead you to from going from someone like Bernie Sanders to someone like Gary Johnson. It's just that that's just, you're taking the opportunity to pick whoever you think is going to, you know, is, is, you know, will define you as being edgy or anti-establishment. Right. I mean, there's interestingly, I, I think that there are some people on the far right who would say the exact same thing about Donald Trump, that Trump represented that mm-hmm. for that extreme of the right. Sure. And I think that this this is in, in so much of his support. I mean, as we know, like the, the modal Trump supporters is your bog standard Republican voter and they voted Republican because they vote Republican. That's what they do. Um, but there is this kind of small segment of his support, numerically small, but noisy and overrepresented in the thinking of his administration that really belongs to these kind of new, new-ish, newly adapted, old and, and, and again, truly terrible ideas that really should have been left on the dustbin of history. Uh, you know, they're, you know, they've been kind of re-energized by him. So yeah, that's that. And that when the vote for him was, he was a, a better vehicle for their discontent than uh, there were more of them. And he was a better vehicle for the discontent. Than Marco Rubio would have been. <laughs> than Marco Rubio. Yeah, exactly. Than Marco Rubio would, we could have had a good, you know, think about the kind of liberal neoliberal debate we could have had. Yeah. You know, what, what might've been. But you make the, you make a really important point that uh, as opposed to what, would have potentially happened on the alt, uh, with the alt left impact on a Hillary Clinton administration, um, despite you know some of the adjustments in the Democratic uh, platform, which never really is a governing document anyway. Um, on the on in Trump's case, it is significantly a point, and a lot of the things that um, uh, attracted alt right members to him and got people excited about him. Um, you know, the half of his all supporters are deplorables, which when Hillary said it, it was a horrible thing to say. And it definitely cost her votes with people who may have been in the middle. But numerically, she may not have been that far off. If you figure that he had really only had a ceiling at that point of about 40 percent of support, half of that is 20 percent. You're going to tell me one in five Americans don't have some deplorable views that you really don't want to hear anymore. It's entirely sure, plausible. Or are willing to tol- or are prepared to tolerate them as part of their thesis. One of the things that Josh Marshall has been really good about on Talking Points Memo is sort of cleaving to this to his point that Trump's hold on his base is grievance. Yeah, that more than anything, like, and again, this is again not the broad segment of Trump voters who again were pretty much bog standard Republicans, but 
you know, the new voters and the new voters in the states that we that, that we as Democrats either lost or either lost that we didn't expect to or won very narrowly, you know, that the change there was, you know, these people who are reacting at it from a place of grievance and, and either hold those views or are certainly willing to tolerate people who do in order to have their grievances heard. Yeah. Uh, so, again, you know, it, it, we'll think about think about on that clock face and it's a little bit circular. And the idea of the people on the far alt left who want to destroy, blow up everything and destroy everything are saying essentially the same thing that Steve Bannon on the far right is saying and blow up everything. And they're both kind of blaming the stagnant system on crony capitalism, which is sort of an interesting point that they both are obsessed about this crony capitalism. There was a long article in the Wall Street Journal today about uh, the idea that Steve Bannon's uh, economic nationalism is all based on um, the significant hit that AT&T stock took during the Great Recession and how his father's entire life savings was wrapped up in AT&T stock. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's that. That is a very fine founding myth that I congratulate someone on having conjured up and founding and finding someone credulous enough to publish. Yeah, you know, sort of like, oh God, yeah, the AT and T stock went. My father really suffered. Oh my God, I become a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sure. a it's a two step process. Yeah, that's, that's precisely it. Lose a little in the stock market, but you know, you know, and suddenly you suddenly you start subscribing to some pretty interesting stuff. Oh, hey, my copy of Mein Kampf came in the mail. Sweet. All yeah. Right. Well, you know, this more than makes up for it. Yeah, definitely. So. So we've yeah, got, let's move on so to the alt. A little bit about the alts, a little bit about the alt right, a little bit about the alt left. So, but now we are going to talk about the bet noir of this particular podcast, the alt center. Look at you using fancy words. No, that's what I'm here for, man. You know, this is just the, the, this is just uh, you know, our uh, uh, our pretentiousness on parade, or at least mine. Okay, centrism. A little harder to nail down than right and left in that right and left are you know, political positions that have principles and, and sort of coherent worldviews. And the center, by definition, is an act of, of compromise. So it's a little harder to nail down. But in the modern political era, centrism has tended to mean the idea that government service for social ends can coexist with pro-business policy. So you know, think about the kind of Clintonian and Blair third-way politics. That's a good example. Like you can have – you know, pro-market, pro-business policy, and at the same time, and use those to fund, you know, a, you know, a reasonably sized government apparatus uh, that uh, provides uh, social services of one kind or another. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the kind of, and it essentially is not, is that government provides services, but is not suspicious of the profit motive. So that's a good example of this, of kind of, and, and you can make the argument that that model has not served very well. It didn't have a very good innings uh, during the new labor period, and it didn't have a very good innings during the eight years of the Clinton presidency. There's a, a very reasonable debate to be had there. But that's kind of, but that but that concept of centrism has at least uh, a kind of coherence as a as a central governing principle. Alt centrism is the belief in civility of process and compromise for its own sake. Yeah. So yeah, you know, uh, one variant of that is if you think about um, a Bloomberg terminal, and I use Bloomberg particularly uh, in this case. Uh, the alt center essentially wants to throw in data and problems, and then the computer program runs it through, checks that it works with all the, the, the polling numbers, and it checks that it works with all the legal aspects of it, and it spits out something that is ideologic, you know, devoid of ideology, has no personality, and isn't necessarily looking at things towards the future or created, creatively looking at things. It's just, here is your solution to these particular sets of problems. 
Yeah, this is a kind of, that's the sort of evidence-based variant of alt-center. And like the alt-right, where there are a number of different flavors, each of them worse than the last. Uh, but while there are a number of different flavors of alt-right, there are a number of different flavors of the alt-center. And the Bloomberg model is definitely one, this kind of hyper-rational, evidence-based uh, you know, the, you know, one, you know, one moment, uh, you're, you're pushing stop and frisk the next moment you are, uh, you know, legislating against the size of people's soda pops, right? Like there's not a, this is not someone who belongs strongly on either the right or the left, but is, you know, is following what he sees as the evidence-based approach to policy. So that's one model of the alt center. And there are a couple of other ones. And, and the central essence of, of the alt center is, you know, we talked about the formula before. There's a grievance, there's a diagnosis, and there's a radical prescription. And the grievance of the alt-center is incivility and failure to compromise. So if only people were more civil, more coolly rational, if they just had fewer principles that they cared so much about, they'd agree with me. And within this grievance, there is zero recognition that sometimes compromise can be bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the idea that compromise can sometimes be bad. And with the Bloomberg model, and again, going back to some of the third way stuff you were just mentioning, um, despite the fact that there was a lot, that there's a lot of issues there of triangulation or looking to do things in a, in a compromise, in a way that you can compromise with the other side, they were all still very personality, personality driven programs. Bloomberg was a unique politician because he was worth $30 billion and he can walk into office and not be owned by anybody. Clinton and Blair were both very unique politicians in their own way. And the fact that none of, none of these things have been repeated since then um, is a pretty important point towards this whole thing. Um, you know, so with sure. all, and with, Clinton was yeah. elected, but in Clinton was elected because of the candidacy of Ross Perot, yeah. who was probably the high watermark actually of, 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 of honest to God centrism in American politics. The guy got almost 20% of the national vote on a promise to get deep into the, uh, well, as he said, to get under the hood of the government. Like he got a, like he won 20% of the vote basically on the promise that like, I'll get into the budget and get into it in detail. It was in some respects this kind of delightfully, charmingly, seemingly sort of anachronistic, hyper-rational way of governing. Like, you know, I don't promise to lead. I have no particular principles. But, you know, if you elect me, I'll be the actuary in chief. It was amazing. Yeah, and I think that some of this myth of the business leader as politician has, come, has been born out of both Ross Perot and then Michael Bloomberg. And then I think some people looked at Donald Trump and said, oh, here's a successful businessman, and that is obviously incredibly debatable. And it's also a very different kind of business that he, that he runs. But I think that, that that is where some of this idea of, oh, he's a, he's a businessman, he will be a hyper-rational and he'll grow into the role, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem being with Donald Trump in this case is that he's a narcissistic demigod. So – it doesn't really work in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, going back to alt-centrism and some of the uh, problems that you alluded to in our, in our little um, uh, Abbott and Costello routine earlier, um, alt-centrism starts anew every single day at 6 a.m. with the alt-center's own Paul, who found his way to alt-centrism by way of a large paycheck at Rockefeller Center. And this would be Joe Scarborough. Um, essentially, it assumes that there is no political virtue other than a balanced budget and health care, uh, responsible and reasonable health care. And you ultimately run out of process in favor of ideology and leadership. And this always happens. Um, and you saw this with the fact that uh, Al Gore couldn't pick up the stream, the steam from Bill Clinton, who left him a balanced budget, actually a budget surplus, a world largely at peace. Um, and Gore couldn't win that election. And obviously, you know, people will go back and forth. Oh, he only lost by 300 votes in, in, in Florida. But the issue is, it should have been a blowout if you actually, actually look at the numbers. So this is where the ideology and leadership actually fits in. 
And it also fits into the idea that Hillary Clinton couldn't pick up from Barack Obama in the same way. She, he was leaving with very high approval ratings, with an economy that was uh, growing rapidly, despite the fact it was leaving a lot of people behind, which is something that we have learned uh, in, in, in great detail um, as people go back and try to figure out what happened. Um, and Tony Blair had the same problem with handing it off to um, Brown, where there just was a, you know, a lack of ideology and leadership potential there. Um, so, you know, if you think about it, kind of the height of alt-centrism would be the economic wins that the Clinton administration had. Um, and those would be, you know, the balanced budgets. Um, you know, obviously, it's, the people will debate this, but welfare reform had a large position. But in, in, in the case of a lot of the Clinton wins, people looked at it and said, um, you know, it was all about uh, triangulation. Uh, which was, you know, they said it was a better, you know, more nuanced way to get the job done than just straight up compromise. Um, because after all, the government wasn't really compromising on anything. If you keep in mind that Congress shut the government down twice and they impeached the president once. So the lesson here, I think, is, you know, sometimes in the face of total opposition uh, and intransigence is when things actually happen. So, you know, what I would say about, and I agree, I actually think, uh, you know, the, the sort of the high watermark of centrism in terms of achievements of, of, of America in American politics in terms of legislature definitely occurred during the Clinton administration. But it's hard to sustain that because as a general rule in my sort of observation and experience, voters want to be led, not governed. Yeah. They're looking for a vision that they can subscribe to, something greater than themselves. Uh, and if you look at the the sort of the big pieces of defining legislation, you know the new you know from the left, the, you know the New Deal legislation uh, at all of Atlee's state building in Britain uh, post World War II, you know that wasn't those weren't acts of grand compromise where they you know they reached across the aisle and in good fellowship. I mean those were basically deals that were just jammed down the opposition's throat into the teeth of some pretty stiff resistance. Yeah. Uh, but but you know those were leaders who had a vision and they articulated it and they got enough votes to win. Yeah, and again, you know, look at look at how the person who was supposed to pick up pick up the steam from them and win next, you, they didn't win any of those times. You know, Obama also ran on a big vision. Um, granted, he didn't live up to all the vision at all the times, but Hillary didn't have that big vision picture. Um, you know, if you go back to sort of the nuts and bolts of it, uh, if you talk about like the gangs of eight or twelve or twenty five that happened in the Senate when they actually cut deals and get things done, those are all terrific because things actually really get done. But it's really important to have folks on the extremes still batten down the hatches. Um, you know, I, you always hear this idea that before 1994 uh, and the, the uh, Republican Revolution and the contract with America and Newt Gingrich when they came in and kind of blew everything up, everybody in Congress on both sides got along. They had dinners together, their kids played together, they all, you know, drank together, you know, tip in the gipper, bent elbows together to cut tax yeah. deals. Yeah, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan having a drink together is like the alt center's Pieta, yeah. right? Like it's this image <laughs> they just can't get out of their head, right? You know, there's like statues and portraits, and they're painting it, painting it on velvet, like you know, you know, Jesus and Elvis, or you know, I mean, it's just like it's it's this sort of iconic image that they can't get out of their their minds, and and. And while there is something to be to be said for that, uh, there is a lot to be said for understanding the humanity of the people that you have to work with, recognizing them as people. Uh, at the same time, like a lot of the policy that was pushed through over these, you know, these happy times when everyone got along was pretty was incredibly destructive to the country. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely incredibly destructive. So you know, kind of in the reality is when everybody was thinking that the, all these great stuff was going on, you had you know 100 senators, 20 were way off on the right, 20 were way off on the left. 
10 were too drunk or old to function and 50 did the governing, but you still had the bases that despised each other. Yeah. So that's there. And, and on the subject of sort of that spite, that brings us to another model of kind of alt centrism. Uh, so we talked about a little bit about the Bloomberg way, which is this very sort of evidence based notion of, you know, we, why don't we just be hyper rational? We're just going to solve our problems by looking at evidence, whichever way they lead us is the direction we're going to go. There's no sort of underlying principle. There is another model, and I would argue this one is probably the most visible of the alt centrist models that is really represented in the writing of David Brooks. This is, I mean, he is this sort of the, the, the pope of this kind of alt-centrism. It is, this is the one that really fetishizes civility and institutions and process. So it has, you know, extra, so his, you know, in this vision, extremely well-credentialed, mild-mannered professionals who are, you know, well-versed in, you know, in, you know, in classics and, you know, current moral philosophy and the, you know, whatever psychology books, David, you know, pop psychology David Brooks has written, uh, you know, all of these, you know, they have a series of civil exchanges and that's how government works. And there's a good example of this. Uh, last month, February 14th, uh, he wrote a, a piece, David Brooks wrote a piece about the different ways of resisting Donald Trump. And he said, you know, there's very briefly, he said there are sort of three models. One of them is, uh, you know, we may be in a, you know, there's one model of resistance is take to the streets, everyone demonstrate, you know, make your, make your well known. Another model is to go home to your home states and run for office and rebuild democracy from there. And the third is that we need someone like a, you know, like a latter-day Gerald Ford to come onto the scene and restore faith and trust in government and government institutions the way that Gerald Ford did after after Watergate. And I was reading this thing thinking, sure, actually all three of those things are would be really good. Like we should be taking to the streets and protesting the Trump administration's agenda. We should be going home to our home states and rebuilding democracy in our communities. And yes, I'm not necessarily sure I would have picked Gerald Ford, but it is really a good idea to have, you know, some, you know, professional governor, uh, so, you know, a professional civil servant step in and create a sense that the adults are back in charge. But no, David Brooks un- is not saying we should have all three of these things. He then says what we need is that Gerald Ford figure. So think about this. A day after the national security advisor is forced to resign because he's a national security risk, as we are discovering, a foreign agent of the or an agent of the Turkish government, among other places, we've turned out, talking to people he shouldn't have been and so forth. The day after that happens, a scant few days after the first Muslim travel ban, David Brooks is out here calling for Gerald Ford, not protests, not going back to your constituencies and and you know your hometowns and rebuilding democracy. What we need is a nice centrist, mild-mannered professional civil servant or elected official to come in and restore faith in this stuff. So yep. that's the Brooks model of alt centrism. Who it should go, you know, it it should be mentioned whose top advisors were Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the idea. I mean, Gerald Ford proved nothing other than the fact that Saturday Night Live can do political humor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a good point, man. That article really got under your skin. You've been talking about it for a I, month. I, I'm not letting this go. Yeah. <laughs> but as God is my judge, I will die with hatred for that article on my lips. Basically, we just have to have David Brooks on the show. Oh my God! This. <laughs> <laughs> We joined. I mean, if ever anyone really wants to hear something surreal, the podcast equivalent of a Salvador Dali painting, you know, hang in, you know, hang in for when we finally get David Brooks on this fucking thing. Yeah, we'll get his advice on how to prevent scurvy. <laughs> I'm sure he has many, many. Thoughts. <laughs> 
But getting back to alt centrism, uh, change CPI. <laughs> it prevents scurvy. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but let, let's go through some examples to kind of really beat this alt centrism idea to death, so everybody really understands it. So that when we continue to use this for the next, you know, however many shows that we do. Uh, people really understand it. Uh, one organization I want to particularly point at is an organization called No Labels. Um, and it's an organization that I donated money and time to at some point. My old boss, Mark McKinnon, is an incredibly major force behind it. And the ideas they push are all good. You know, one of the ideas that they had uh, several years ago was uh, for Republicans and Democrats to sit together during the State of the Union, which was just a nice idea. And we're seeing some of that with uh, Beto O'Rourke and... Um, um, I can't remember the other congressman's name now. Heard. Heard. Yeah, Will Heard uh, from, from San Antonio. is apparently a former CIA officer. Uh, they're driving cross-country to make it back, and they've been FaceTiming this thing live. And it's actually mixed with some reasonably entertaining and educational programming. Um, but my, my point with no labels had always, has, has always been and continues to be is, yeah, those ideas are all great. You know, having the president come and do question time in the well of the House is a great idea and will probably make, you know, C-SPAN's rating goes go through the roof, but what's the end goal here? Just to have more civility in the government or just to continue come up with more unattainable ideas that everybody on both sides can just laugh at while people in the middle say, that's wonderful, we should all be doing that. Um, other examples would be things like a little bit more you know, high bar would be Brookings Institute and Council on Foreign Relations, both incredibly sensible places producing really smart things that are uh, vital in some ways to ensure that People in the government are, are informed of, of things that they might not get from their daily briefings. Um, but again, what's the end goal if you're just proposing things as, things that are completely unattainable? Sure. And this, but I, what we want to be clear on is this is not a criticism of, of smart, dispassionate analysis. No, it's absolutely certainly not. Not, not a yeah. criticism of the kind of bipartisan, uh, you know, relationship building that we're seeing from, from this wonderful buddy cop movie that, uh, you know, that Beto O'Rourke and Will Hurd are shooting as they travel across the country, you know, or, you know, Jeff Flake and Martin Heinrich, the two senators, one from Arizona, one from New Mexico, uh, you know, who went on a, went, a, went on a desert Island a few years ago and spent some time together there as a way of kind of, building, uh, you know, building trust in a personal relationship, which is, you know, not necessarily a premise to which I would have subscribed, but sure, like all of this stuff is fine. This smart, dispassionate analysis is good. Building relationships with people from the other side is also good. These are good ways to execute the ideological principles that underpin a political party and underpin a government after they win. What the alt center does is elevate that process so that it is what underpins government. It fetishizes the process of smart, dispassionate analysis and civil and you know and civil relations at the expense of any meaningful principle. And I'll give you some examples of this. So there's there's a phenomenon that you see on the left. This kind of more on the on the part of the kind of left side of the of alt center. This pathological need to make friends with and rehabilitate opponents. So immediately after this election, there were a number of progressives, you know, who were calling for at a kind of grassroots effort to work with Republicans. Like we need to start working with Republicans. Who are the good Republicans? I mean, did you not see what just happened? Uh, so, you know, there, you know, as if, well, having been, having been beaten senseless by these people, we must now find a way to work with them. Why would you do that? They just beat your head in. Yeah. Uh, there was a shortly at, at the opening of the, uh, the museum of African-American history, 
there's a picture of Michelle Obama hugging George W. Bush, which, you know, made the, you know, made the rounds of the interwebs as people looked at it and said, oh, you know, wasn't it great? You know, isn't this great? This is, you know, real leadership showing that, you know, be, you know, we can put aside our differences and so forth. And even Michelle Obama clarified that that was just kind of an awkward social moment that ended up being with this picture being taken at just the right time. And it looked like something it wasn't like she does not love George W. Bush. And that's been part of this whole thing of George W. Bush's continued rehabilitation. Like, you know, the guy says a couple of critical things about Donald Trump and suddenly he's every Democrat's best friend. This, you know, the, that tendency to, to look back and think, oh, isn't it great that Michelle Obama can hug George W. Bush? Like she doesn't like the guy. No one should like the guy. <laughs> the guy there's eight years of good reasons never to speak of George W. Bush's name without a curse. And yet here we are. And you get this stuff of like these continuing just embarrassing panegyrics for John McCain where, you know, where they're always, you know, he's every, you know, every, you know, every, all, he is kind of the alt centrist idea of what a politician should be. But he is actually just a bog standard Republican who goes on the Sunday shows and says different things. Those are all sort of examples of hero worship on the part of the alt center. And I would say that the media is particularly susceptible to alt centrism because it elevates even handedness to a moral virtue rather than being just a kind of basic professional practice of the media, right? Like yeah. you're meant to be even handed there, but to them it becomes a kind of, you know, it's, and, and this is, and this is understandable. I'm not necessarily throwing stones here, but if you're in a position where you're obliged to be even handed, even when, or feel obliged to be even handed, even when some pretty bad people are doing some pretty bad things, you can find that as a way of being, you can find that, as, you know, it, it's easy to look at that and say, Ah, this is how people should be. This, this is that civility and even-handedness and dispassion is actually how governments are supposed to be run. And again, it becomes a moral virtue rather than just something you have to do as part of your job. And you know, with all you know, with all respect to someone whose coverage of politics I quite enjoyed, Tim Russert was an inveterate alt-centrist in this respect. Like the guy could not get enough of. You know the idea of pro- of process and discussion for its own sake. And again, this is not throwing stones at Tim Russert himself personally, but he was in that respect very representative of this. You know what we really need is more civil is more civil debate. You know, to be honest with you, I don't know how civil we need to be with an administration or a party that is you know proposing to deprive you know between eighteen and twenty four million people of their health insurance, killing a large number of them, mm-hmm. and you know is on side with you know separating separating children from their parents at the borders if they're trying to immigrate uh, and and with you know and with banning uh, people from a certain faith for coming into this country. Civility, I'm not entirely sure comes into play there. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting that you bring up Russert um, and and the media in general because if you think about the media, media thrives on conflict and controversy, right? So the idea that they're gravitating towards the alt center to me just means that that's the area where you can actually find the most conflict because they're conflicting with both poles, right? You have the alt center going back to our you know clock face. You have the alt center at the twelve, and you have everybody else falling on either side. So essentially, if you find somebody, you know, a good honest alt centrist um, in the Mitt Romney circa two thousand eight model. The media, the media loves that idea. The emptiest of all, like, to the extent that the alt center is empty. Mitt Romney, circa two thousand eight, is a perfect example of this, right? Like, right. one good thing the guy does with insurance, and for a while he just like coasts as like you know the good Republican, right? Or John Huntsman, circa twenty twelve. You know, it's the same idea, where you have a Republican that doesn't seem like he's totally off the deep end on ideas. He seems like he's a decent guy, can get along with people. He's a good family man, etc., etc., etc. And the media fetishizes over these people the way that you said it. 
Um, you know, another person you're talking about, John McCain, is Lindsey Graham, who, you know, for a lot of people, myself included, you get excited when Lindsey Graham actually decides he's going to be proactive against Donald Trump. But as we said uh, last week with Whitney, uh, he had this lunch with Trump and then tweeted out this really friendly little thing afterwards. And it kind of infuriated me where it's just, oh, right, Lindsey Graham's not a good guy. I forgot. Sure. Because he was the guy out there saying, I want to hear, I want answers on this and I want answers on that. Sure. And it's, you know, and that's, this is again, an understandable, there's something understandable about that impulse, right? Like you want to, this is true, I think, especially for progressives. That's really why we've done this, because I would argue that progressives are much more, along with the media, progressives are much more susceptible to alt centrism because, you know, we want to think of ourselves as having a nuanced view of the world. We want to think of ourselves as people who can see the right, even when, in someone with whom we disagree, see, the ver- see their humanity and recognize that. And as a result, we, can have a, we are prone to and wildly overcompensate toward this kind of alt-centrism where, you know, civility and getting along and being, you know, are, are seen as hallmarks of being reasonable adults. And, and, and we extend that courtesy to people who don't deserve it, to ideas that don't deserve it. Yeah, and I, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty good example of that. Um, you know, initially after the Trump won the election and people were, you know, talking about how to resist it. And uh, the first thing to come up was uh, um, Secretary Jim Mattis. Um, he needed a waiver uh, granted by uh, Congress in order to become Secretary of Defense because he hadn't been out of the military long enough. And some of our friends on the, on the left uh, who I thought were crazy were saying, no, we have to fight tooth and nail on this. You know, Kirsten Gillibrand is right. Let's fight this tooth and nail. And my response was, you know what? If there wasn't this waiver issue, we would all be singing from the treetops how happy we were that Donald Trump picked Jim Mattis to be defense secretary. So maybe this isn't one to fight. Maybe we should focus the firepower on the potential of Rudy Giuliani as Secretary of State or Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. Um, But I've kind of come around because my initial thinking was that Donald Trump was unpopular enough or had no built-in support within Republicans in Congress that there would be more pushback by those Republicans. Um, But in the end, you know, John McCain and Lindsey Graham, God bless them for at least saying the right thing sometimes. They're not really doing the right thing at this point. And I'm not fully in the, in the court of let's fight every little thing tooth, tooth and nail. I still kind of do believe that there are certain things that there might be opportunities to work together on. But I'm a whole hell of a lot closer to the fight everything than I was. Sure. And again, this is a, this is an understandable impulse. And, I, you know, I get, I get that. I mean, I think and I, I've struggled with this a little bit myself. There was a push after Trump was elected to sort of raise – and before we saw how badly the transition went, I think the, the clown show that – was the burning clown show that yeah. was the transition, I think really did away with a lot of this. But especially early after the election, there was this kind of – there was a tendency on the left to ask, OK, what are the areas where we can compromise? What are the areas where we can work together? And it's like, well and, – and this doesn't rule out the idea that like if by some absolute goddamn miracle – this, you know, White House and the Republican Congress managed to generate something like an infrastructure bill that's worth a damn and, you know, is an infrastructure bill that is actually real and not just we're going to call it an infrastructure bill. But really what it is, is we bulldoze your, you know, we, we bulldoze the public school and replace it with a private citizen, private prison run by Blackwater. Right. Like that's <laughs> if they actually produce a real something like a real infrastructure bill, that doesn't necessarily mean the Democratic leadership couldn't take a look at it and think, all right, on a case-by-case basis, this is not a terrible piece of legislation. It's going to do some good. Maybe we have a conversation to be had here. But f- but first of all, the, again, the odds that that is actually going to occur, I think, are slipping pretty pr- pretty yeah. rapidly. And, you know, but even that impulse, what are the areas where we can work with this guy? 
you know, as opposed to the where I think most of us have kind of gotten to, which is, you know what, man, fuck this dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with that, I think let's uh, let's bring the, let's <laughs> you know, bring this all home. <laughs> that incredibly mature piece of analysis. Come to this place. <laughs> this come, come to taking ship and listen to us give you good prescriptions on how to be a good political professional. Actually, that kind of sentiment is exactly what you need if you want to be a political hack. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if you thank you for uh, joining us as we combat. Uh, alt-centrism, you will hear about this theme again. If you feel yourself at risk for alt-centrism, we just want to leave you with this. Get some oranges. Get some oranges. Uh, find some uh, some greens and fresh meat in a working toilet. If you feel yourself, <laughs> if you feel that you're at risk for alt-centrism, please don't keep it to yourself. <laughs> please get help. Put down Politico. Go to Jacobin or Think Progress or Red State or the National Review. You may not agree with what you read. You probably won't. Hopefully you won't. (laughs) Hopefully you won't. But it will enrage you. And in that rage, you will return to true north. Your compass will be shaken. You will will return to your true north. We are great believers in rage here at Taking Ship. Indeed, when we take ship, we never leave port without a large supply of grog and sheer unadulterated fucking rage. In this era of Trump and abandon, remember and abandon. Remember who we are. We are the owned, the trolled, and the furious, and we need to act like it. Rage is your friend. Yeah, and yeah. rage is your friend, which means you need to get more taking ship. So please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship, and that's ship with a P, as in Polaris. Um, we'll be posting this this uh, episode pretty shortly, and uh, please tune in again later this week. We'll be having a great conversation with Bishop Garrison. Take care. I will still be angry.